So I want to talk to you today about rhythm and uh, how rhythm is used in architecture, how it's used in human culture and human communication, and how rhythm, for me anyway, pervades all of human existence and is probably the most fascinating and wondrous thing to speculate upon and to see how it's linked across all these different disciplines. Uh, you know, for me, architecture, you know, buildings, the physical built environment, spaces, physical spaces, houses, homes, skyscrapers, all that kind of stuff is only a very small part of architecture. But we can see rhythm expressed in in that very clearly through things like, you know, the regularity in a structural pattern, you know, columns being regularly laid out one after another. You know, think of the great mosquito in the mosque in Cordoba. You know, that's one of the most rhythmical spaces you're ever going to come across. You walk into this incredible, beautiful, um, magical space on top of a large hill and you see these arched columns one after another slightly you know kind of off center from each other and it just sets up this incredible rhythmical space which you know helps you flow through it and rhythm is used in human communication as well there's a cadence to the way we speak you listen to um, someone like Tony Mose um, or any kind of gifted uh, MC, their rhythmical ability in the words that they're using, you know, they're taking that rhythm and they're using it to express and deepen uh, a meaning. You know, as human beings, when we're in conversation with each other, our physiology is inherently rhythmical. When we're speaking and you're kind of in deep conversation with somebody, there are phys subconscious physiological things which will... Uh, synchronize with the other person. For example, Milton Erickson, the great grandfather of modern hypnosis, observed that our heart rates and our blinking patterns would synchronize with the other persons as we were in you know, deep levels of rapport. And this becomes quite fascinating, this idea of rhythmical syncopation, of synchronization, or as physicists and engineers call it, entrainment. And there are just all sorts of rhythmical cycles going around in our world and we are constantly tuning in to the vibration, to the rhythmical cadence of other things and responding to it. And we see that in all disciplines from architecture, music, human communication, mathematics, everything. Just start looking for rhythm. So I'm going to leave that as a little bit of a, of a thinking piece and we'll come back to that idea more this day and I'm going to look whilst I'm walking around Dubai for things that are rhythmically fascinating. So continuing on this ideas of architecture as being a transformational art, there's a wonderful quote that I love uh, from Ralph Erskine, the architect, who said the, arch the role of architecture is to ease human relationships, not make them worse. Now this becomes very apparent in the context of the home of a house. And for me, when I meet with clients, I always meet away from the house. This is because I want to understand the project through their eyes first. If I go into a house, my architectural brain starts firing off and I start providing architectural solutions to a problem that I don't know anything about yet. I'm just looking at it and I'm just sort of almost mechanically, you know, here's what you can do here, here's what you can do there. Now, in some situations, some buildings are very limited to what you can actually do. But 
the real power, and particularly the power in the building becoming used for transformational purposes, is to be able to have and embed the conversation about what the aspirations are of the client first. This is how buildings accrue meaning and how they become structures for holding us accountable to living to our highest aspirations. It's the conversation, the conversational element that is some of the most important. And then the details and the technical solutions will follow from that. You see it in some of the world's greatest buildings. Um, the conversations between Louis Kahn and uh, Joseph Salk, the Salk Lake Institute. Um, you know, they really pushed each other in a dialogue to produce a building that was extraordinary. And so for me, when I meet a client, I always want to understand the problem from their eyes first. And often when we're designing homes, when we look at what the biggest fears are around building a house, it becomes one of fragmented families. It becomes one of having a house which is not functioning as a vehicle for good communication. Now there's lots of other things that are involved in the psychology and therapeutic um, you know, ways of making sure there's healthy family dynamics and talking and communication, that's all at the key, that's all at the root of it as well. But our space can end up being very detrimental to any family that is putting in place good communication or is have that aspiration having fragmented layouts or places um, where the building doesn't feel like a kind of a social unit is can be very very destructive we look at the kind of indigenous architecture of, of various communities um, there's a Shabono, Shabono, these these kinds of you know beautiful spaces where there is no um, physical boundaries. There are no walls separating the communities. The communities are kind of left in a big circular space and able to share and create spaces through conversation. The architecture becomes built into a kind of uh, conversation. So. Having that at the heart, having that aspiration of creating a family home, homes which are built for relationships, which you've worked with somebody closely and intimately to build and achieve that, this is where we start to point towards the transformational power of architecture. So, here I am on this beautiful spring evening. I'm wandering around the Downs in Caterham, which is south of London. Um, and I'm here with my dog, Millie. It's not actually my dog, it's my brother's dog. But I love her and I'm always taking her for walks and looking after her. And I'm always fascinated, actually, I've spoken about this before, about the relationship between animals, nature and space. And, you know, the implications of that for architecture. And Millie, the dog, has this wonderful tendency, like as soon as I let her off the lead, she kind of creates a spatial sweeping around me, where I'm the kind of centre of walking around, and she'll go off and she'll explore all, all around, but she'll always kind of gravitate, like she's kind of orbiting around me, she'll never kind of go off too far. And there's a, 
a, a, there's some kind of implicit spatial communication which she's aware of. She knows not to go too far out of her boundary. Either it be, you know, her hardwire DNA kind of tells her it's too dangerous for her to lose the pack or lose me. Um, and also she's very uh, understanding of my intention. So if I intend to go right, she will know that I'm going right and she'll follow. She won't stray off. And she's got a very good sort of, you know, an inbuilt hard wiring of um, like a spatial relationship between me and her. And also which gives her the freedom to explore. And this kind of inbuilt spatial awareness that we have, um, that animals have, that we have, is very fluid. It's very dynamic. Um, and it's quite, it's fascinating, and it is, it's a relationship, it's conversational, it's, it's, it's moving, it's ever-evolving, but there's an underlying relationship to it. And our cities and our homes and our houses have the same um, uh, spatial relationships inbuilt to them, except they appear to be much more static because they are housed in materials that don't have legs and aren't alive. However, we are continually using space as a form of evolving conversation to make meaning, to communicate with each other, to build relationships um, on an ongoing basis. And what I'm really fascinated by with cities is to explore those relationships, to look at them. Um, you know, I was at the Tate Modern the other day, and there's this wonderful, uh, you know, you've got the new Herzog and de Muron extension, which is all big, heavy building in brick, and then you've got the Richard Rogers um, neo-bankside building, which is this kind of elegant, lightweight structure. And the two are having a conversation between them. There's a kind of, uh, the conversation of one harking back to its in industrial age past, and it's kind of got this huge industrial presence to it, so it's heavy, it's built, it's kind of creating spaces at the bottom, it's kind of imposing. Then you've got the elegance and the lightweight transparency of the Rogers building, very much in contrast. But the two are communicating with each other. What they say is, you know, it's up to your inter interpretation, but you will be able to kind of go and walk at the footprint of the neo-bank neo side. And certainly it does not feel like two gigantic skyscrapers. It feels much more like a kind of very peaceful, open garden space, which you can kind of use to have a nice social aspect. So I'm always interested in the relationships, the spatial relationships between buildings and seeing the conversation that's happening. So continuing on this ideas of architecture as being a transformational art, there's a wonderful quote that I love uh, from Ralph Erskine, the architect who said that arch the role of architecture is to ease human relationships, not make them worse. Now this becomes very apparent in the context of the home of a house. And for me, when I meet with clients, I always meet away from the house. This is because I want to understand the project through their eyes first. If I go into a house, my architectural brain starts firing off and I start providing architectural solutions to a problem that I don't know anything about yet. I'm just looking at it and I'm just sort of almost mechanically, you know, here's what you can do here, here's what you can do there. Now, in some situations, some buildings are very limited to what you can actually do. But the real power 
and particularly the power in the building becoming used for transformational purposes, is to be able to have and embed the conversation about what the aspirations are of the client first. This is how buildings accrue meaning and how they become structures for holding us accountable to living to our highest aspirations. It's the conversation, the conversational element that is some of the most important. And then the details and the technical solutions will follow from that. You see it in some of the world's greatest buildings. Um, the conversations between Louis Kahn and uh, Joseph Salk of the Salk Lake Institute. Um, you know, they really pushed each other in a dialogue to produce a building that was extraordinary. And so for me, when I meet a client, I always want to understand the problem from their eyes first. And often when we're designing homes, when we look at what the biggest fears are around building a house, it becomes one of fragmented families. It becomes one of having a house which is not functioning as a vehicle for good communication. Now there's lots of other things that are involved in the psychology and therapeutic um, you know, ways of making sure there's healthy family dynamics and talking and communication, that's all at the key, that's all at the root of it as well. But our space can end up being very detrimental to any family that is putting in place good communication or is has that aspiration having fragmented layouts or places um, where the building doesn't feel like a kind of a social unit is can be very very destructive we look at the kind of indigenous architecture of of various communities um, there's a Shabot, is it Shabono, these, these kinds of you know, beautiful spaces where there is no um, physical boundaries, there are no walls separating the communities. The communities are kind of left in a big circular space and able to share and create spaces through conversation. The architecture becomes built into a kind of uh, conversation. So having that at the heart having that aspiration of creating a family home homes which are built for relationships which you've worked with somebody closely and intimately to build and achieve that this is where we start to point towards the transformational power of architecture architecture is a transformational art for me anyway and what do I mean by that? What is transformational? What is transformation? Buckminster Fuller, the great polymath, the polyglot, the futurist, the architect, the inventor, said that life is constantly in a state of transformation. And it's our job as human beings to join in that transformation. That doesn't mean change or improve. It means transforming the way that we are being, the way that we see, to relinquish our fixed viewpoints and perspectives in order to experience the magnitude and the awe of who we are and what we are, what we're capable of. And architecture at its heart has that transformation embedded into it. Well, it can do. It's possible for it to have that. Um, the way that typically our society works is through the consumption of information. This is how we learn. This is how we uh, explore the world is through knowledge 
through consuming information. Our typical schools are set up in a way where we learn through reading, we get tested on it, um, we add more knowledge to what we already know, we get tested some more on it to sort of validate that we've got it, and it's a very sort of, um, it's a very myopic way of learning about anything. And often, you know, we need it to become professionals, you need it to get into universities, you need it to have, to be a doctor or whatever, it's useful, right? But transformation, what we're talking about here, to have the power to, you know, remove whatever's in the way of you from being powerful and effective and using the knowledge that you've already have, that's, that's, what we're, that's what's at the heart of architecture as a transformational transformational art um, and it and a, a little story this weekend actually uh, a friend of mine an amazing guy is an architect he's never practiced as an architect he's done all sorts of other jobs he's been a bouncer a chef um, all sorts of all sorts of things and he really you know, I've been talking with him, and he wants to get back into the field of architecture, and he wants to become a designer, and he wants to get a job. And um, we d he did a, a, a transformational program this weekend that I sort of suggested that he might explore and look at. And he really got present to the power of architecture, um, not being something that you just learn or you hire an architect, but the power of architecture if it was used to help people develop themselves. And he was speculating about starting up a kind of group that would help uh, kids that have come from sort of similar backgrounds from him, um, you know, stop kids from getting into gang violence through empowering them through the creative aspects of architecture to help people being the creator of buildings and how that can be a sort of metaphor for being a creator of your own life and your own experience. This, for me, is a very powerful usage of architecture. It goes beyond the typical um, role of an architect as being someone who merely organizes space. This is someone who's organizing communities at a very deep level. Good evening. So check out to the groovy four to the floor house music that is pumping in the background of this particular post. I'm sitting in the funky lobby of Citizen M Hotel in London Bridge, which is a, uh, a Dutch hotel chain. And they've got a number of these hotels right across the globe. Um, and they've got a very interesting lobby space, which I tend to frequent quite often, um, as it's a very good place because it's got free Wi-Fi, there's loads of comfy places to sit, um, and I can set up my mobile office for an afternoon, for a day, or for an evening, um, drink my cups of coffee, grab a little bit of lunch, I can have client meetings here, and it's all in all it's a pretty good space um maybe the music's not always to my taste but it keeps me certainly keeps me awake um and i, I like this concept i like this concept where they have taken the idea of a hotel lobby usually a place 
which is all about status and stature and impressing and the kind of first impression and often they're not really places um they're not always social meeting places uh, in your kind of inner city hotels in your kind of country mansion hotels the hotel lobby is always seen as a kind of living room if you like a kind of cozy fire where people would kind of sit and meet and talk and chat and converse uh, and so there's kind of a contemporary idea of that in these hotels where they are spaces which are designed <coughs> for, for for facilitating conversation interaction and what's interesting is that they are spaces that have become destinations in and of themselves for the local populace so they're not spaces which are just for the hotel residents in fact i would say the hotel residents are in the minority here um, as the majority of the hotel is filled with young entrepreneurs startups people without offices freelancers all coming in plugging in um, making use of the free Wi-Fi and the good coffee, um, and this is a particular this is a particular trend. I've noticed a lot of hotels are doing it. The Ace Hotel in Shoreditch, the Hoxton, also does a very similar sort of thing by giving um, you know kind of very workable spaces um, for freelancers, and it kind of starts cultivating a relationship with the with people who are not residents of the hotel, people who are. Um, transient visitors from the local areas and I like to equate this kind of giving away for free something small a little bit like a monkey's fist so the monkey's fist the marketing um, idea of you giving away a small informational brochure or booklet or giving your customers something free first then helps kind of cultivate a relationship when you can then reel in something bigger, a bigger consumer product. You can sell something larger later on. It comes from the idea that monkey fists used to be small little knots of rope um, that were tied to much larger, huge ropes. And these small little balls would be swung around the heads of somebody who was on the ship and they would throw them ashore. You better catch easily the small monkey's fist, pull it in, you'd, then you'd start pulling in the larger ropes, and then you do lots of these, then you can eventually pull in the ocean liner. So that's my thought for the day, the sort of monkey's fist of the new living room hotel lobby spaces that we are seeing in a trend right across the uh, freelancing startup hoteliers world. Thank you.